Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen from White Light Media. Welcome to the last episode for 2018. Bit of a special one for you here. Our guest this time is George McIntosh, a man who follows in the footsteps of great Scottish adventurers, moving from one project to another across the globe, always looking for the next big thing and usually finding it. This interview was conducted live in front of an audience at the Caledonian Club in London. George's story of shrewd opportunism and hard work is a great example to any budding entrepreneurs, and he's wonderful to listen to. This podcast was created by White Light Media. Find out more about how we can help your business at whitelightmedia.co.uk. Thanks very much to to George for coming uh, along. I had an opportunity to meet him a couple of weeks ago. Um, in describing himself, he said, I'm not an inventor, I'm not a visionary, I'm an opportunist. But he's a very talented opportunist, as we will discover in the course of the conversation, I'm sure. He comes from a farming background in the, the north of Scotland, but decided to transplant himself to a very different uh, environment in Dagenham, in Essex, during a pretty grim time for the British economy, so we look forward to hearing about that. <coughs> and what I've noticed with George is he kind of plots every stage of his career every move very carefully. Uh, so he went on to get involved in selling modems at quite an early stage in that particular type of technology and went on to uh, achieve a, a huge number of uh, successful company developments, uh, acquisitions and exits. So we'll talk all about that. Uh, as you've just heard, he's moved back to, to Edinburgh now um, and is primarily involved as, the, as, as a director of Eggplant, which is a software testing company and also has bought a farm in East Lothian, which he's got very ambitious plans for, which we'll hear about too. So welcome to George, and I wonder if you could begin by telling us about how life started for you. On a farm uh, in Inverness, my um, father and my grandfather uh, had been farmers. Actually, my grandfather was a blacksmith, uh, who then became a tenant farmer, uh, and then with my father, then bought a uh, a farm, a uh, relatively modest farm, just on the outside of Inverness. And if anyone's been to that part of the world, they'll know the uh, rather unglamorous 24 uh, hour Tesco and the retail park. Well, I remember working on that field as a child. And I remember, I remember being on a trailer that tipped over and the man who was working with me broke his leg. <laughs> so right on the site of where that Tesco park is. So. By the time my father left that farm and my uncle stayed on, my dad wanted to go his own way. Um, I think it was then later my uncle trousered the money when he sold it to the development company that then built the retail park. So that Inverness originally, but we moved to Aberdeenshire. So uh, my youth uh, was in Aberdeenshire. I went to Edinburgh University, which uh, for me was um, uh, tremendous experience. Um, I, I look back very fondly at university, not so much at school, but very fondly at Edinburgh University. But I had taken a year off before I went to university, which at the time was not something that one did, but I did. Uh, and I didn't go and uh, find koala bears or gorillas or whatever people do these days in gap years. I worked on the oil pipeline. Uh, and I then drove diggers and this, that, and the next thing. So I worked just about every single right. week uh, in that 52-week or slightly longer uh, year off. 
Um, and while I was doing that, and before I went to university, I decided that uh, now I knew I now I knew why I was going to university, and that was to prepare myself for going into business. Uh, so I went to university, but while I was at university, nobody talked about being in business. You know, there were no courses on entrepreneurialism or anything of that sort. Um, you did the milk round, you got a job, and you went off to work for a big company. So because I didn't know what I was going to do, I followed that route, um, and I wanted to go into a business that I could, um, I had empathy with, and a brand that I had empathy with, so I went to work for Ford. And because I was a sort of practical guy, and I, you know, I, I you know, men had worked with me on the farm and such mm. like, I thought, well, I'll go into production. British industry needs me, I thought. <laughs> so I went to Dagenham. Uh, I drove to Dagenham with, in my Mark II Cortina, <laughs> if anyone's really interested in details. Uh, and it took two days because you couldn't drive very quickly with this little old Mark II Cortina. And um, I dropped my girlfriend off in Earl's Court. Uh, she did not feature that much longer in my life. Maybe it was the Mark II Cortina. Um, I dropped my girlfriend off in Earl's Court. And then I thought, right, uh, Cranham, Upminster, that can't be far away. Well, no disrespect to Upminster, but it's at the end of the district line. And by car, it took me two hours to get there. And it was, it was just suburbia that I wasn't mm. used to. Uh, and then when I went to Dagenham, my goodness. Yeah, know, I mean, I, how, how did the, the workforce greet this young Scotsman coming well, down to the, um, move them around? That's a great question. I, I think the only uh, forgiving uh, thing about me was that I was Scottish, so I was different to them. If I'd been a young <coughs> London lad and, and suddenly I was the foreman, I'd have got a lot of stick. Um, so I, I, I was okay. Um, but the Dagenham estate at that time had 50,000 men. Uh, it made cortinas and fiestas and engines. It had its own power station. It had its own foundry. It was an integrated industrial complex. It had its own ferry that took men across the, the Thames to Woolwich. Uh, it was the grimmest, biggest <laughs> place you've ever seen in your life. Um, and, uh, and I was put to work as a production foreman on a diesel assembly line. So what did you learn from this? Because I know it's quite a formative experience. What did you take away from it? Um, um, well, first of all, first thing is, it's not, it's, it's all about management. So it wasn't the workers' fault. You know, there was I at the end of the 70s, uh, Red Robo, some of you might remember uh, industrial relations and the reputation that British uh, workforce had. You know, it wasn't the workforce really. They were just conditioned uh, and shrunk into roles where they had no involvement in the factory and they just behaved in a, in a a robotic fashion. In fact, oddly enough, the whole factory is robotic now. But, they, you know, they just did their job. They weren't involved. Why would they want to be involved? And when things didn't go well, they went on strike. And the management uh, was incredibly unenlightened. Now, somebody somewhere had thought, what we'll do is we'll put graduates in the floor. Um, and that was me. Uh, and there were a few others. Well, every single one left, and then eventually I left. I was the last to leave. But those enlightened people in HR hadn't actually told any of the factory management. So we were just treated 
as foreman, you know, and, and uh, I remember being uh, encouraged to believe that I might become a general foreman in five years' time, and so on and so on. And, and so it was just hopeless. Uh, I so enjoyed how long it. were you there for? Yeah. Two years. Two years. And um, so after the two years, what was the thinking of your next step? Well, I remember going to see... Uh, does anyone work for Ford? Because I'm going to give them a hard time. <laughs> uh, I went to HR in Ford, and I said... Uh, and I went to the little man there, uh, and I said, uh, I'd like another job. He said, oh, I don't have any jobs. And it was a grim time. It was the early years of the Thatcher government. Uh, the plant had gone on short-term... Uh, no, they'd shut the two shifts down to one. And I'll tell you a funny little story about that. When they shut the two shifts down to one, and I was already driving a tipper at weekends to make up money, because prior to going to Ford, I'd done my HGV class one, so I was driving Arctics up and down the country. Uh, and when I went to work for Ford, I was earning less money than I was as an Arctic driver. So to make up my money, I drove tippers at weekends. So um, when they shut down one shift, I thought, goody, that means that on the week that they shut down the, that shift, uh, I'll be able to drive tippers. So I'll get, and, and the word was, you get 80% of your uh, previous take-home pay for just staying at home. I thought, goody, excellent. And they said, oh, no, 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 you're staff. You've got to come to work. But there's nobody at work. <laughs> Doesn't matter, you're staff. So the foreman had to come to work on night shift even though there was no production at all. So I went to see the, the, the guy in HR, and I said, I'd like another job. And he said, well, there are no jobs. I said, well, you know, anything. I mean, you know, anything at all, any other function, anywhere. I'll go to Wales. I'll go to Liverpool. But there were factories there. Anything. You know, the, the more aggro, the better. Just send me there. And he said, no. So I thought, OK. Um, so I thought, well, I'll do something that links my performance to my uh, wage. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that, that's sales. And then I thought, well, what do I sell? Cars. That's too easy. Photocopiers, you know, at the time, a bit too easy. So I found something deviously obscure, and it was modems, which in, in 1981, 82, the only people buying modems were banks, uh, more or less. Mm. Uh, and they were uh, um, putting their branches online. That's the thing we take for, advantage, uh, take for granted now. So. That was so who, was, who, who, who did you, you work for initially? Uh, it was a cable and wireless company. Right. So, um, and did you get a good training in sales or just a pure <coughs> natural? Yes, that could just... yes. Um, and, and that's, that's another thing uh, that one doesn't see now. Um, those big companies, as Ford did for me, you know, a little bit of training, uh, but then mushroom-like fashion just left me in a little box for two years and did nothing. Um, but Cable and Wireless did train people to, to be sales men and women. Um, so that helped a little bit. But, it, but it, was, it was a duck to water. I was really happy in it. You know, One day I was wearing a frock coat, as it was called, and the next day I had a shiny suit. You know? <laughs> Still in the shiny suit, really. So, so uh, you'd be going around all the, all the banks in London? Um, yes, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. yes. I, I, did, I did then join a company called Case, which had kind of disappeared. That was a real go-getting mm. um, British company. It listed uh, towards the end of the time that I was with them. So that was a really <coughs> scaling business at the time. Uh, very um, 
thrusting to the point of being aggressive, uh, and we were absolutely going around all the banks and all the oil companies, the big uh, international companies, um, selling modems. Yes. So what was the, the next step then, George, from being uh, obviously a very accomplished salesman to actually running your own businesses? Well, the, the first one is, not to make this too long a story, but the, the, the first move was a mistake. So let me, let me just record that right now. Um, I thought, um, you know, having been this and that in, in, in the sales world, and, and, and I did reasonably well um, as a sales guy, I thought, right, now, now I can start my own business. So I thought, right, what's a really kind of interesting thing to do? So microcomputers at the time were appearing. So, you know, there were mainframes and there were uh, minis and there suddenly there were microcomputers. And some of you remember the story. Um, uh, so I thought, right, well, I'll set up a microcomputer dealership and I'll sell microcomputers. What I hadn't discovered, whether I could have discovered it, I don't know, was that about six months later, IBM introduced the PC uh, which rather scuppered uh, the opportunities for anybody selling anything other than a PC. Uh, so uh, that business struggled for about 18 months or so. It didn't fail. We turned into services. We were doing um, uh, computer training for uh, different companies, uh, some public sector, some, um, some oil uh, businesses. But that business did not fly in the way that I thought it would. Um, so something quite a less, something quite less than a success, not an abject failure, but, but call it a failure if you want. It was a taste uh, of going into business uh, on my own. Um, back then as a salary man, um, at, with the, the once great Motorola, <laughs> the story there, I suppose, you know, that was a great company, very engineering led, uh, and they, I mean, I worked for their data communications division, selling modems and stuff like that to uh, international banks. Uh, Reuters uh, was my particular account, um, uh, selling to Reuters globally. And obviously, Reuters were connecting up all their offices. Um, uh, but deadly boring, uh, if anyone's... Uh, well, nobody works for Motorola almost anymore, but uh, it was a, an engineering... It was an excellent engineering business, but... Uh, so boring that they, you know, they didn't take their eyes off what they were doing and didn't see the opportunities they were missing in the mobile market and various other things. So having had a taste of running your own business, were you kind of quite frustrated there and keen to get out and do something on your own again? Well, this is where the opportunist, uh, opportunist thing was. Um, I, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't quite sure what I was, what I would do, so I was just looking, looking, looking. And from data communications, a kind of thin line into telecommunications. And um, I discovered that um, there was an opportunity um, to get involved with a business and to be a partner in a business uh, based in London. Well, I could, I could base it anywhere, but it, it, we decided to base it in London. Um, so I was the equity partner. So from that point on, it was, for me, it was always about skin in the game. So I wouldn't do this by myself. Hmm. I, would, I would be the London partner of a Chicago-based business. And what we sold was conference calls. So in 1992, uh, conference calls were again um, uh, 
you know, pretty new. The only people that were conference calling were investment bankers. Uh, you would, I remember going to Lord Hanson, uh, Hanson PLC. Hanson Trust was in a building right here. And I climbed under his desk and plugged in a speakerphone. Uh, <laughs> looking at this thing, and I said, "Now you can speak into it." Really? Uh, I said, yes, you can. And, and you can hear people. Really? Uh, and that was Hanson doing investor relations calls. So, conference calling was the thing I got into, and that was that was a boom. That was great. Um, and on one occasion, I went on holiday to Hong Kong, and I took a suit with me, probably the same shiny suit put it on and, and did some prospecting in Hong Kong and came back, phoned the partners in Chicago and I said, you know, I reckon with half a million dollars uh, we could set up a base in, in Hong Kong and that's exactly what we did. So, uh, and then Hong Kong was a very immediate success. What was it about Hong Kong that you thought this is just perfect? Well, it was, it was and I've, I've done this a few times, it was um, a David and Goliath thing. So, uh, in the UK, running conference calls, the only other company was BT. Um, but it's great to compete with a Goliath, um, particularly that sort of lazy telco type Goliath, because it was about delivering a better service, you know, better price, better service, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and the same applied in Hong Kong. It was, um, uh, it was a cable and wireless company by coincidence. Hong Kong Telecom uh, was what it was called. So, uh, and they delivered a dreadful, shabby, uh, you know, unpunctual service. So if you're right. punctual, yeah. polite, you know, good morning, Sir Brown. We now have your eight uh, delegates online. Would you like the call to begin? It's now precisely eight o'clock. That sort of thing, and uh, it was a boom. It really went well, Hong yeah. Kong. And of course, it was a very quiet time out there. Uh, you know, I went to bed very early. It was a, uh, it was a really, really. Uh, we all believed that you know, in 1997, it would suddenly get boring. So, in the lead up to that time, it was like party as wild as you can. So, how long were you out in uh, Hong Kong? Um, about uh, about 18 months, only right. 18 months. Okay. Uh, and I had a little place in Hong Kong, and I had a little place in Pimlico. I'm sure I very nearly died several times <laughs> trying to keep both plates spinning, but it was a lot of fun. So did um, you take the business into other markets as well? Um, I, I was quite busy enough with uh, the UK uh, and Hong Kong, uh, and it was a partnership, so uh, that was a little complicated. The good thing was my other partners were 4,300 miles away, um, and uh, you know I was doing a good job for them, and I had a reasonable amount of equity in both, both businesses, uh, but we then sold it to a, uh, an American telco. So, you know, I was reasonably young, trousered some money. Um, the American telco hadn't really spotted me uh, and didn't really make me an offer of any sort. So on Friday night, I left the lawyer's office. Monday morning, I phoned the bank to check the money was there. Money was there. Um, and by Thursday, I booked a holiday, went on a holiday by myself, sadly, but never mind. I uh, came back, uh, resigned, uh, and uh, no intention of working for them. Uh, and I, I thought it would take me three months. It took me 13 months uh, to set up a business by myself. It was 3i backed for those people who remember the once great 3i. Uh, and they supported the startup plan, so we got straight into the market, straight competing against my old uh, employer, I suppose you would so call So how it. did they take that? 
very bad, but it was just... <laughs> it was all legal. A few letters from the lawyers. Legal, yeah. A few letters from their American lawyers. Um, but uh, there you go. Uh, that they were probably was pretty annoyed with themselves that they hadn't thought to yeah. keep you on board. They shouldn't make that mistake again. <laughs> so how did that go, then, in terms of... Well, that competing was, against him. Was there another David Goliath-type yeah, strategy? Um, yes, yes, it was, because, you know, now I had, um, you know, just BT to compete with, but this <coughs> other company, and, and the market was getting more complicated. But um, we innovated. You know, we did per-second billing. Everyone else was doing roughly per-minute billing, uh, per-minute billing. We introduced automated services, which you'll all know now. So, you, you know, you typed in a PIN number, you got access to the service, take that for granted, it didn't used to be like that. So we did, we did a lot of innovation uh, and we did uh, audio, uh, web uh, conferencing and video conferencing as well. So we extended what we did into what's called collaboration services. So I made myself, you know, a bit of a, a geek in that market mm. and I really, you know, by necessity I had to get under the carpet and understand what was going on. And uh, we did, yeah, no, we did very well. Um, so well that five years later we sold it, as happens. So, you know, the criticism is, you know, why don't British businesses scale up? Well, in the exuberance of youth, uh, you know, I, I didn't think about that at all. Really. You know, somebody offered me a certain amount of money and I thought, yeah, that'll do. But is, is course, that your personality as well? Are you somebody who's not that interested in the long-term scaling up? You love the thrill of ooh, start-up start and the... That sounds yeah. like an accusation. Not at all. Well, yeah, the, the, I suppose the honest answer is mm. yes, you know. Um, so it's, it's not... Really, it's not, it hasn't been about the money. It's been about the adventure and, yeah. and the satisfaction of building something, you know, building something uh, that's got people in it. It's got a mm. brand and a, and a reputation and customers. Um, I really, really liked that. You know, that was great. Um, that was that particular business called Geoconference, guess how that came about, um, was, you know, we had 100 people in Glasgow uh, and... Uh, uh, people in London, people in Switzerland, uh, oddly enough, and then people in Singapore. Uh, that was really satisfying. I, I absolutely loved it. Um, but uh, uh, say someone came along and made us an offer and we took it, and there was an awkward earn out, which I did. Uh, I could cancel well, a couple against of couple those. years, was it? Or? A couple of years, yep. I got out early. Um, you know, those are always sticky because... Uh, the structure of those things and very often the acquirer is looking for a little bit of a deal um, uh, by underpaying because you haven't hit the earn out thresholds there's complexity there but um, it was it was deadly dull uh, for me and in case anybody is thinking of employing me I, I don't advise you do but um, um, you know the, 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 the fun of that build um, just changes like a light switching off when you become part of, or for mm. me anyway, when mm -hmm. you become part of something bigger. And so on that particular occasion, uh, I used to have to video conference into management meetings in um, Denver, as it happens. And um, I, I used to think, oh, I should record this because it, it would make a fantastic play. It was like watching The Office, you know? The, the amount of jargon uh, and, and BS that was coming through and politics and all that sort of thing. I mean, no disrespect, no, no disrespect to 
uh, people who work in big companies. But, uh, you know, I'd done my corporate apprenticeship. Mm. Uh, I didn't really want to do it again. Uh, and, so you were relieved to, to run out the door there when your, your period was up? Yes, sort of. And, yeah. and what, what next? Did you, did, you straight, did you spend that time preparing another plan or did you take some time out? Um, I, I've never taken a lot of time out, you know. Um, I've, 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 I've taken weeks out, but then it always takes months to get things back together again. So, you know, the life as a serial entrepreneur... Um, has time out, you know, 13 months, as I said once before, um, another 13, 15 months again. But that's not all a holiday. Um, indeed, only a few weeks in each of those periods are holiday. The rest of the time is doing my own due diligence, if you like. And, and then, having done that, if I choose to raise money, is other people then doing their due diligence on me. Um, so <coughs> it does take a little bit of time. Mm. <clears throat> so the next thing I did was a little bit of a roll-up of um, other businesses, um, which I quite enjoyed doing. Uh, I then did some work for 3i, um, and that was about knocking down businesses rather than building them up. Um, How did that feel? Well, it was interesting. I can say mm. I've done it, you know. Um, so I'd, I'd opened offices in other countries, and now my job uh, in this, this 3i tech business that was part of the tech crash was about closing offices in other countries. Uh, and those countries included uh, Croatia, the United States, India, Italy, Dublin, you know. Uh, so, they, you know, that was, that was just... That was just business, really. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, uh, but, but it wasn't so much fun, shall we say. But in that, I, I did get a taste for um, software. Um, so that was the opportunist. I, uh, well, I found myself in a software services mm -hmm. business. Um, and what I liked about software, and knowing nothing about it myself, um, I liked the fact that you can, you can color it, you can shape it, you can market it in almost whichever way you want. Um, it's like Play-Doh, uh, which is a kind of dull substance, but you, you, know, you jazz it up by uh, making it appear to be lots of things that it, that it might be, but it, but it is about the marketing. Mm. Um, and it is about probably managing the technical resource to be able to uh, make it work to some extent. So software I got interested in. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, then ev eventually, after another little period, uh, during which time I started looking at uh, other industries just to spot whether or not software was the right way, I, I looked at anaerobic digestion, which uh, was, you know, nobody had heard of anaerobic digestion at the time. Now everyone's heard of it. Um, the problem is that's a very capital-intensive business. Uh, and I thought, no, no. Uh, I looked at kinetic recovery, on uh, braking systems, which that's the, you know, the petrol head in me. I got, um, but I thought, mm, okay. Um, so I thought, no, back to my knitting, or back to my new style mm. of knitting software. So um, I thought, right, well, how do you set up a software company uh, that, and, and this time I was determined to scale it, you see, but how do you set it up uh, and scale it? I thought, well, first of all, find a niche, but then it, a niche that's big enough uh, to be a scale-up. 
Um, so I thought, okay, well, it's uh, B2B. I'm a sort of B2B guy rather than a B2C guy, uh, if you know what I mean there. So, um, you know, business to business, uh, it's, it needs to be so-called enterprise software, but not so big that people will be alarmed at buying from a little company. So uh, I found a niche which was in sort of, it's a subset of software development. You know, if you, you build software, you got to test software, someone's nodding. So I've got, I'm, I'm holding someone's attention here. Stay with me, I'm not going to do a geeky <laughs> thing. Um, uh, so, but you know, that's important. So every time a bank says we have a glitch, they haven't tested it enough. So if anybody works for a bank, uh, a glitch is where you haven't tested your software sufficiently. And glitches are bad. Glitches are not good. Uh, I also recognize that in 2007, uh, this thing had been introduced, the first uh, iPhone. And I thought, and that's interesting, because people will start to consume software in a different way. And we all consume software on this, by and large. You know, we read the news. We communicate, et cetera, et cetera. And, and prior to 2007, that wasn't apparent. Uh, and if you consume, consume software on this, the software that's being delivered to you has got to work on this. But it's also got to work on that, slightly different format. Uh, and it's got to work in different operating systems. So I thought, oh, so testing is going to be a really awkward thing. That's what I'll do. So that's what I did. So how did, what did you do? You went out and found a... a Company, a small company that you could. I found four and a half employees that had um, hoodies. Hoodie, completely, completely. If you've ever seen Silicon Valley, which I recommend you do, uh, honestly, the, the 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 chief executive character of Silicon Valley is absolutely dead like the guy uh, that uh, I eventually uh, worked with. So there are four very clever guys. Two of them exceptional, exceptionally clever guys. Um, you know, one of those two had even met Steve Jobs and pitched an idea at Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs had thought, yeah, it's not bad, and then, you know, went off and did something else. But so, you know, he was bright enough to be in an ecosystem where he could sit around the table with Steve Jobs. So I thought, no, these are great guys, but they just couldn't sell, you know, um, ice cream to the Africans, you know, that was just... Um, uh, they were hopeless. So I thought, great, that's good. <laughs> uh, I later discovered that they'd sent an email between one and the other and said, yeah, George looks like an okay sort of marketing type guy, you know, in a very kind of condescending way. So, but, but you know, it was a perfect relationship. So we got together. Uh, the only problem was they were 4,600 miles away from me. And by coincidence, I mentioned Denver before they were in Boulder. So, but I liked them. They had a few customers <clears throat> um, that they'd never been to see, you know, because uh, they had a customer called Raytheon, which is a huge uh, American um, uh, defense prime, huge business. And I said, this is amazing. You know, do Raytheon like it? Well, we think they like it. So what sort of guys are they? Well, we've never met them. Where are they? Well, they're just around the other side of Denver. Uh, so, um, you know, these were geeks, uh, and these still are geeks, really. So uh, I thought, no, this is great. So we got onto it. Um, uh, you know, I, I started setting up the business in London, um, selling in London, selling in America, selling in other places. Uh, we picked up some patents, made some big deals. 
and just on and on. So, um, you know, to, to be concise about it, uh, we had no national plan. It was only an international plan. So that's what I get onto. I, I saw uh, Dragon's Den the other day, and I, I, that program irritates me a little bit. Um, and somebody, this woman had been selling stuff, a unique product, into different countries. And they go, and what about the UK? And she said, well, not much. And I go, ooh, you know, that's bad. Well, of course, that's, that's such a traditional way of viewing it. You know, the view is you go for scale and, in your own country, and then you go international. Depending on the product, that, and, and in my case, that, that's rubbish, you know. Uh, if you can sell it internationally, sell it internationally. And, and the, the business we're talking about is called Eggplant, and yep. um, the... I mean, can you give us a, a sense of the scale of the business now and what your, your hopes for the future are? And also, what happened to the, the four guys, four and a half guys? Are they still there? Um, uh, three are still there. <laughs> okay. So the one and a half left, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so the three are still there, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, they've all made a fair amount of money. So, um, so that's, that's good. That's good. Um, so we, it was a story of startup to small, uh, to medium. So it's a scale-up business. So it's, it's not huge, but we went from, you know, four or five people uh, initially. Um, we're currently at about 190 people uh, in the business. Uh, we operate still from a base in, in London, um, development center in Boulder, Colorado, uh, sales offices in uh, several cities in the United States, the main one being Philadelphia. Um, uh, office in uh, Berlin, uh, Tokyo, um, Shanghai, uh, people now in India as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's um, as, I, as I once called it, it's a micro-national um, business. Uh, and it's continuing to grow. And you, you've taken a, a bit of a step back from the day-to-day -day yes. operational side. Now you've moved back to Edinburgh. Yes, And you absolutely. have acquired this farm to Papel in East yeah. Lothian. Uh, which is very interesting and, and takes you right back to where you started life, I guess, in a way, on, on a farm. So can you tell us a bit about what you hope to achieve there? Well, I, um, I mean, yeah, this is, is, is this a business story? I don't know. But um, one of the things I, I had, uh, you know, working in software and, and speaking about um, you can colour it and shape it and price it, whichever way you like, it's, it's not very tangible, is it? But what was very tangible in my mind uh, as a farmer's son was that farm buildings or steadings, not, not many people know the word steading, believe it or not, so I'm sure you do, but, but not many people. But those steadings are disappearing off the face of the earth because they, they crumble, they get knocked down by farmers, they get chopped up into houses and things like that. So they're, they're lost uh, to public access and, and people wonder what they were, what they did, you know, what's a ducop, what's a buyer, what's a court all these sort of things. So for some time now, I thought, no, I'm going to save a steading uh, and um, I'm going to uh, uh, tell the story. So having found <coughs> a, a, what I think to be a very, very fine steading, uh, I'm in the process now of uh, restoring it, um, creating an agricultural heritage centre inside it, uh, then creating a business centre, uh, and then uh, with some other things. Uh, please don't tell anyone because it's all subject to planning. Um, so if any of you are from East Lothian, uh, I'd like you to leave your name and address right now. And, um, 
because uh, it's in East Lothian. Um, so we, uh, we'll have accommodation. We'll create a business retreat there. So it's not far out of Edinburgh. Um, so in this historic site, in this listed building, uh, we'll have a combination of things going on, uh, which satisfies my desire to save the building, but it makes it financially sustainable in the long term. Um, and it's, uh, it was part of uh, the estate, um, the Balfour estate, uh, and the man who built it went on to beco become prime minister. Uh, the, and that man then wrote okay. the Balfour Declaration uh, mm -hmm. in the house just along the road. Uh, and then Jewish children worked on that farm. Uh, uh, and those children were evacuees from mainland Europe in 1938, mm -hmm. 1939, and 1940. So there's kind of, there's, there's tragedy, there's economics, there's technology mm. uh, to be told in there. And the, the economic story is the agricultural revolution. Uh, and I've even spoken to uh, Tom Devine, Sir Tom Devine, and he most perfectly uh, describes the fact that we all know about the highland clearances, and we all know about the industrial revolution, <laughs> but we don't know about the agricultural revolution. We don't know how Scotland moved from being a very rural agricultural community in 1700, and by 1900, we had become the most industrialized country in Europe, bar England, but this, the pace of our change was much uh, quicker uh, and more radical than it was in England. So uh, a tremendous transformation, or as uh, Tom Devine says, the transformation of, of, uh, rural, of our rural landscape. So I want to tell the story of how we went from run rigs to enclosed fields, the improvement movement, one or two nods, um, which is almost a disappointment because, but I'm, I'm presuming most people don't know about this. Certainly most kids don't know about this. Uh, and I'd like them to know about when it went on in this building, but I'd like them to know the economic backdrop. I'd like them to know the, uh, about the rise and fall of the, the landed classes and their dominance uh, in politics and, and economics in Scotland and how the landed classes shaped and reshaped the, the face of Scotland uh, and how the clearances which apply in my heart to the Highlands, well, they, they weren't only mm. to the Highlands because there were just as many people cleared of the land in the lowlands as there were in the Highlands. It was, it was without the, the, the sweat or certainly without the blood and tears uh, that applied in the Highlands, but numerically and proportionately, just as many people were cleared off the lowlands. So that's that's. So you have a, a real, a real passion for, for the, the topic. Yeah, no, it's I'm, be, I'm, it's I'm be having fun. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Also very passionate about motor racing, which we you mentioned briefly a couple of times. Oh, what's okay. what's the, the story there? How long, you know, how did you get involved, and what have you got up to in that field? Well, they, they, my father had three sons. One liked animals. One liked pulling machines apart and fixing them, and, and I just liked driving them. That was all. So um, so, one brother is still on the farm. Uh, the other brother's an agricultural engineer, and I'm a sort of, you know, one-time semi-pro racing driver. So I raced on two wheels and four wheels. I've raced in the British uh, GT Championship, the European GT Championship, the Porsche Cup, and all that sort right. of thing. So I raced sports cars and had a lot of fun doing that. Um, and, you know, that's just, 
Uh, I enjoy the rough and tumble uh, mm. of mm. that uh, professional, semi-professional sport, right. and there was a lot of rough and tumble uh, in that. Uh, you, know, uh, you, you have to forgive me. You know, I've got to have one vice in my life, and that's only one, uh, and that is motor racing. And uh, rather neatly and symmetrically, you, you're one of six children, and you have six children of your own as well. Um, mm. And my, my father was one of six as well, so oh, I, I, just had, I just had to do <laughs> Did it. you almost do it on purpose, just to, yeah, you know, yeah, after you yeah, had five? Yeah, that's <laughs> right, yeah, that's exactly. Third generation of yeah. six children. Well, thanks very much, George. It's been really interesting. Uh, round of applause, please, for... <laughs> Thank you very much. What a great story. Thanks to George. And we'll be back in the new year with more fascinating characters from the world of Scottish business. Bye-bye. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.